0: Putting this cost to zero moonshot in context might be helpful. In 1960 in the US, if you look at the total healthcare spending, we spent 37% of the dollars paying for hospitals. We spent 24% of the dollars paying physicians. We spent 11% of the dollars buying drugs and the rest on everything else. And last year, we spent 38% of the dollars on hospitals and we spent 24% 24% on physicians, and we spent 12% of the dollars on drugs uh, and the rest on everything else. And so what we've done in this country in more than 50 years is make the healthcare pie bigger. We've fundamentally changed what happens in those sites of care in some places. Um, but for an industry that you would think would be in some ways the most innovative that we could have, um, it's hard to believe that that distribution of where the dollars go really represents something that's transformative. And in fact, it in many ways represents the problem. And you know, one of the challenges I think we have is that it's not just a problem that we last year spent $3.3 trillion on healthcare here alone. It's 20% of GDP, it's 10% of spending around the world. Um, it's that we know that the cost of healthcare is the single greatest barrier to access. Um, we know that how much money you have has a bigger impact on your health outcomes than almost anything else we can identify. We know that your zip code has, almost a, has a bigger impact on your health income health outcomes because of that. And so one of the challenges becomes, when you think about this as a moonshot, we do a lot of kind of diddling around the edges when it comes to healthcare cost. costs. We're going to take 10% out here. We're going to make this 5% better. And those are big numbers when you add them up. They can be hundreds of billions of dollars. But the reality of it is we live in a world where the average 50% of Americans say they couldn't find $2,000 to pay a medical bill in 30 days. And so if they have a plan that's got a deductible above that, it doesn't matter if it costs them $2,200 or $22,000 or $220,000. They're Right? not going to go get that care. And that's why this really needs to be a moonshot. This is why we really need to think about maybe not cost to zero, but cost pretty close to zero, cost that's an order of magnitude lower. Um, And it's been exciting to be here, Um, it's been a kind of optimistic couple of days to hear people who are really thinking about uh, how we do things that are bold and daring and audacious in healthcare. Um, But these conversations always happen with a little bit of of skepticism. Um, There are two industries in the last 30 years uh, that have had declining productivity per worker and they are healthcare and education. Right, So every time we introduce a new technology in healthcare, we add people, we don't take them away, and we have to pay those people and train those people and insure those people and equip those people. Um, when we bring out a new pharmaceutical treatment, no matter what the pharmacoeconomic papers say, we still keep a certain amount of the medical cost in the system that doesn't actually have to be there anymore. We keep bringing them back in and we do the things... And then we've created an economy that is immensely dependent on healthcare. Healthcare is uh, the largest employer in the U.S. by industry. Uh, in most towns and cities, the health system is the largest employer. One out of nine people in this country actually works in healthcare. Um, it's the only industry that actually had job growth month over month through the Great Recession. Um, added 8,000 people a month in hospital jobs just a couple of months ago, and so we have this phenomenal kind of dichotomy in the US where on one hand, we are doing really innovative and really great things for people. Um, And on the other hand, every time we do them, we make them less accessible for everybody. Um, And so that's the challenge here, which is how do we actually really view cost of care as an access issue as fundamentally a moral issue and not being about getting $2500 to be $2200 or getting $100,000 to be $80,000 but really saying how do we make it so that healthcare is fundamentally accessible for everybody who needs it without laying off half the people in the economy without changing what it really means to be a professional in healthcare um, or without just saying we're going to continue to debate healthcare financing which is just about who pays the bill not how much the bill really is. So um, maybe with that kind of extended introduction, Liz, I'll start with you. Um, You are both um, the heart and soul of the system and in some ways part of that problem that I just rattled off with Mm -hmm. big hospital spins and big Mm -hmm. physician spin. You have 10 hospitals, you've got a thousand doctors, you employ 16,000 people in the Pacific Northwest. Um, What are you doing about it?
1: Well, you know, it's been sort of an interesting for me time to be here and to also reflect about this change of mindset. I, and I was, I was just talking to a colleague of mine where I think we focused on scarcity as a mindset. And I'm an optimist. I'm an impatient optimist, but I'm an optimist. So focusing on abundancy and less in scarcity. But in healthcare, and especially on the provider side – There's a radical cost reductions that we are doing three strategies. The first one is to reduce the current operating model. It is unsustainable. When... When you have 22 billion more people in the United States, because we've expanded health care reform, that costs $44 billion. So we have to reduce the current operating model. The second thing we have to do, we have to redesign the work. And that's what's been so interesting about the last day or so uh, with the conference here, is that you're looking at ways to redesign the work, the clinical work what we do in outpatient settings, what what do we stay out of the hospital? And the third is just a different way of delivering care, less acute care focus, less about the hospitals, more about reaching out to the communities. I'm a, a proponent of really understanding the social determinants of health. So if we all, and that's what you've been talking about for the, you know, for the last day or so, what are, what are those social determinants of health? What are really affecting the overall health status of individuals? And it really is, you know, we have partnerships now with Mercy Housing. We're on our third housing, housing project that we've worked on for, uh, for vulnerable, unhoused individuals. And also, we're we're looking at other aspects to really improve the health of our communities and working in partnership with the communities. I I was uh, telling someone that we're invited. We have 10 10 acute care facilities from Ketchikan, Alaska to Oregon. We're invited in the communities. So there's this... Aspect of understanding what that community needs are and meeting them where they're at. So, really, the the three important aspects is we absolutely have to reduce the current operating model, it is unsustainable. Redesigning the clinical care, and that's what you're talking about with all your different sort of startup ventures. And three is we're going to radically have to design how we deliver that care and focus more on the outpatient setting, more on precise genetic testing for individuals, really being very focused on our care and improving access.
0: Very good. Thank you. Marty, you're a practicing physician. I'm told actually a pretty good one. Uh, And what's the role of the physician in all this? We hear a lot about wasted treatment. We hear a lot about unnecessary care. Where does that start? What does it look like to be a physician today? What should it look like?
2: Well, the hottest word in healthcare right now is value, and everyone's talking about value, but if you think about it, value is just two things. It's price and quality. We can measure the price, but how are we really measuring quality? And if you talk to practicing doctors, they have been become very alienated from the science of risk adjustment, right? It's never good enough, it never captures our patients, our patients are sicker, and of course, we could end up punishing the people taking on the poorer patients or the more high-risk cases. So the risk adjustment model has really been one that's been disappointing. And if that's how we're measuring value, if we're measuring value based on retained sponges that occur you know, on very rare occasions, we're fooling ourselves. We're really just measuring price. So we've undergone this giant national effort to create new ways of measuring quality, really measures of waste. If we have a system that is wasting 20 to 30% of the money, and that's what the big studies show, that's what the National Academy of Medicine suggested, that's what our own Johns Hopkins survey of 2,000 doctors around the country found when we asked them what percent of medical care is unnecessary, they came back with the same answers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who's measuring that part? And our traditional quality measures have really failed us. We've been measuring, okay, now you come to surgery, now we're going to see what happens. Did you develop a readmission or a complication? What about did you need the surgery? When you've got knee surgeons and spine surgeons telling you that 20 to 30% don't meet criteria, can we really start measuring appropriateness? And that I think is the new frontier, and that's what's exciting about the Practicing Wisely project. That's what we're doing now with these algorithms—is trying to capture measures of appropriateness or waste. You know, if you uh, get shot, you want to be in the United States. You want to be in Baltimore. You'll get shot there. (laughs) You (laughs) might get shot in (laughs) Baltimore. And you want to be taken immediately to one of our great academic trauma centers. And you will get state-of-the-art care within minutes and you'll get your life saved. But if you walk into the hospital and say that you've got chronic pain or you have headaches that have been bugging you for years, we sometimes don't know what to do with that. And you, you wonder, have we created a system that simply rewards doing things? Mm-hmm. Uh, Ten years ago, we gave out as doctors 2.4 billion prescriptions. Last year, it was 4.5 billion. Did disease double in the last 10 years? We have a crisis of appropriateness, and I think that's the frontier in healthcare. Can we measure appropriateness? And if so, that we've really captured value. And just to follow up on that, and then I a question for Andre, but how do
0: you ultimately, if we, once we know what's appropriate, which I'm not saying is an easy task, how do you get the physician behavior to change? You know, the, the knee jerk reaction is, we'll pay them differently and the world changes. And we know that doesn't always work. In fact, it doesn't work as often as we'd like. How do you actually change the habit?
2: Well, for a long time, that's been the holy grail of healthcare, right? How do you visit phys- something, an issue true to any hospital CEO's heart, right? How do you influence physician behavior around best practices? And What we've done with the the appropriateness measures is we've been able to graph every physician that does something and can show you where the waste, where the outliers are, those who are doing unnecessary surgery, giving out too many pills, too many prescriptions, too many opioids after routine C-sections in narcotic naive patients, you name it. What do you do with that data? Now, if you talk to different people, they'll tell you, um, make it public information, humiliate the docs. Some will say put them in jail. Some will say, you know, embarrass them. My f- personal f- opinion as a practicing physician is we can clean up our own house. If we can share the data with the doctor directly and it's a peer-to-peer data sharing, we can let them know, and we've done this now with some of our measures, hey, this is the rest of the country and this is you. You're in the outer, your two standard deviations from the mean around this particular metric, they immediately move into the mean. We've done that trial. And I think that's where the power is. Now, what if some people don't respond to that? Maybe there are step two, step three measures. We've suggested that in years two or three, if there's still an outlier, that information gets shared with their management or leadership. And maybe the association would choose to do some action. But I think if we can be civil about it, it'll be effective because look at the ProPublica surgeon scorecard, right? What they did was take some standard methodology and make surgical outcomes by surgeon public information and they got destroyed by the medical community. Why? I would argue it was not a scientific destruction of what they did. It was a territorial destruction. How dare you? tell us you know who's good and who's bad you're an external entity we listen to ourselves you know we doctors are unique individuals yeah. if there's two of us in one town that do the same thing we hate each other <laughs> you know we speak a different language it's a unique vocabulary and i think there's enough heroes out there like andre By the way, congratulations for taking a step to work on the opioid uh, epidemic full-time. That's admirable, consistent with everything I know about you, so. Thank you. But doctors can clean up. We can clean up our own house. We just have to have good ways to measure value.
0: Great. So, Andre, you trained as a physician, and then you quickly decided to change the world on a more macro level. Uh, You worked in government and transformative organizations, as, as Marty just talked about. What's the system view on all this? Where are the big leverage points? Good
3: question. Um, I think the – I want to point out I have real issue with the name of this moonshot. I've said it on Twitter. I think it's very catchy and it's concise. That's good. But I want to echo what Marty pointed out. Cost is not the single variable in the equation. It's one of the two, probably three main variables. But it comes down to value, uh, including also uh, consumer or patient experience. So I just want to be very blunt with that. If we just focused on cost, we could, you know, people dying would decrease cost, right? We we don't want that. Um, In terms of macro view and systems view, I think it pretty simply, to oversimplify it boils down to where the dollars flow, flowing from and to. And I think as as a physician, if I'm not if, I'm a I'm a pediatrician, which is maybe 5 to 10 years behind all of the really interesting payment innovation that's happening in group insurance or Medicare, I operate very much in a fee-for-service environment. Um, I attend as a physician, as a nocturnist, only at nighttime so that I basically can't discharge patients because my expectations and my goals that are set for the year have a very significant volume basis, and if I practice as a daytime hospitalist, I would be I, under, not, not doing a service to my hospitalist division. Uh, as a nocturnist, I don't feel bad because I generally can't discharge patients. And that's a problem. That, that That's kind of how I've hacked my way into being able to, to clinically practice. Mm-hmm. If the dollar flows were different in the pediatric space and frankly in the rest of, of healthcare where the hospital was going to make more money by never having the patient come back unless they really had to, our behavior would be fundamentally different. And I think that is, that, that, that's it. Like, that, that's the answer to everything. Uh, I understand a hospital CFO's uh, anxiety about being stuck in a fee-for-service system, being pressed to go towards value with quality measures and, you know, 1 to 5 to maybe 9% of your revenue being attributable to performance on those quality measures. But 91% of your revenue is still fee for service. So at best what we're going to have is a schizophrenia amongst providers where, yeah, I know 9% of my brain is supposed to be improving, you know, decreasing hospital acquired infection or preventing readmission or whatever. But my bonus is actually going to be, you know, am I discharging or admitting more patients? So until we get to the creative models like the Maryland global budget for Medicare or the Vermont all-payer model or the Pennsylvania rural hospital global budget, it, it's, it, we're just going to be frustrating providers with more rules. Um, I do want to point out a, a caveat here, again, back to the name of this moonshot. Cost to zero has rumblings of bl- I mean, bias. Like Medicaid is, is yeah. my... What I love, not the program itself per se, but who it serves. Um, Cost to Zero has very similar uh, uh, undertones of block grants, which block grants in and of themselves are not a bad thing. It's underfunded block grants. And it, when you get to a big scale, like $500 billion a year spend scale of, of what Medicaid is, if we are really talking about a cost to zero phenomenon or like really driving down the cost without thinking about outcomes, we get into a scenario where a lot of the prior legislation that 's been proposed of like cutting spending to a safety net that is already underfunded by any even like five percent or ten percent that will kill people that will drive down cost, yeah. but outcomes won 't be improved so um, I think we 're i think ultimately. Uh, hospital leaders payer leaders, in my case I just am now uh, CEO of opioid treatment program Uh, we all need to be able to take the short term hit and go to our board and say we may very well lose money in the short term if we're really going to commit to value based payment in the long term and then you're really going to win in the long term anything outside of that is kind of wasting time and frustrating providers so uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see how the head of the pack really goes ahead, even further ahead of the pack by making those types of investments. But it also takes a really brave board to be able to say, fine, we'll take a hit for not just one or two quarters, but one or two or three or four years. Okay. I, I was going to say, what's, what's your take on that? I
1: agree with both of, uh, both of the positions on the panel. This is where we have to change that mindset. Every time as a CEO of... Uh, of a million admissions a year in, in the hospital, 16,000 employees. Every time a patient is admitted to the hospital, if it's not for trauma, if it's not for uh, surgery, it should be a failure of the system. Okay. It should be, we should see it not as a benefit, but as a failure of the system. That means that the patient, you know, either in the community, of it, you know, more wellness care, it, again, with access to primary care. You know, one of our communities in Washington, in Longview, 50% of all the babies that are born in Longview are NARS babies. Those are babies that are addicted to opioids. 50%. Um, When I went to the community to their board meeting, they said they wanted more data. I said, I don't know how much more data you need. (laughs) You know, so let's say we reduce it by 25%. And so those are real life sort of situations that happen outside the hospitals, outside of the physician's office. How, how are we partnering with the community uh, in, in a different way? So, so if we look at externally outside in the United States when we look at some of the issues that are going on, but I think there, we have real life issues here. So it's a failure of the system. Every time somebody's admitted to the hospital, a system failed. So,
0: so Liz, I mean sort of to Andre's point, that's a beautiful mission, right? And I think we need more healthcare executives talking like that. You got to maintain the financial sustainability of the place. How do you talk to your board and your executive team and your staff about the need to take some bets that may not pay off in one year?
1: I'm very fortunate because we're part of a Catholic healthcare system. So the way we view healthcare is that it's a right, not a privilege. And I was at the mother house. We have two mother houses, one in New Jersey, the Sisters of St. Joseph of Peace, and one in Bellevue, Washington. I met with the sisters before um, the holidays. And I was talking to them about the strategies for the future, that we're not going to get bigger, we're not going to acquire more organizations, what we're going to get better at what we do. And again, partnerships with the community. What they said to me was that, you know, you can never do enough for the community, you can never do enough, and you can always do more. So I, so I think it's that abundancy and not scarcity. So let's move, let's change our mindset to abundancy. And that's what we're talking about for the last day and a half here. You know, we can all just say, oh, healthcare is, you know, too much money, 33 billion, always gonna be able to fix it. But everyone here who's here is thinking about ways to make it better. So I, I think that's impatient optimism. We need to do it quicker. Got it.
3: And so, Sam, can I just chime yeah, in really quickly? So I think, Liz, what you pointed out, which is emphasizing this theme of local, 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 um, even though I've had my thoughts on my political bosses, which are no longer my bosses, um, <laughs> I completely agree with their central tenet of local, empowering local leadership. We're, we're, at, we're in an interesting time right now where if the right... Uh, red state congressman Mm -hmm. is engaged in a local issue and is bought in let's say the opioid use disorder crisis Mm -hmm. and that deep red congressman comes to CMS and says I want the following things done I want the following state plan amendments approved I want the following waivers approved let us Mm -hmm. do the following demonstration that's basically the only thing the political leadership at CMS is going to approve Mm -hmm. And so combining the Medicaid dollar flows, which are massive, with some of the interesting SAMHSA dollars, mostly in the form of grants, which are interesting, with local coalitions of commercial insurance, and then progressive leadership like Liz from the provider front, I think we can actually make significant Mm -hmm. strides towards value-based payment. Mm -hmm. Um, i I don't really see many other ways outside of that mechanism. Right. Now it does alienate like the rest of the country.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree.
3: But let's just do something, right? Even right. It, 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 and and great, let's have some deep red states be the exemplars of healthcare transformation. Mm-hmm. That
0: would be impressive. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to ask each of you my usual question as we wrap up, and I think I think we should rename the moonshot with permission from Andre, which is it should be the value to infinity moonshot. I like it. Um, yeah, rather than cost to zero. But maybe maybe Andre, I'll start with you. Um, you're in charge of the value to infinity moonshot. You've got all the time, money, influence in the world. What's the one thing you do to make a difference? I will tell you what I am doing. Um, I don't have infinite
3: resources, but we have good capital. Um, I am investing entirely in the opioid use disorder Mm -hmm. crisis.
1: Thank you. Um,
3: I think that the, um, I I think that the the conversation of the behavioral healthcare system mm-hmm. in parallel with the mm-hmm. rest of the healthcare system mm-hmm. is a mischaracterization of the problem and how we get to the solution. The addiction problems that we have, given that they are chronic diseases, not moral failures, mm-hmm. despite what my right. boss thinks, former boss, um, <laughs> uh, th- that, those are chronic diseases that will be impacting us for the next. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Decades. So if behavioral health is incorporated as a fundamental aspect of how we do our provider pathways, of how we do the actuarial analysis of premiums and how we do policy, I think then the progress towards value-based payment will include behavioral health care. But right now I mentioned Medicare, group insurance at the forefront. Medicaid five to 10 years behind, behavioral healthcare is just now starting to salivate over fee for service yeah. because they got off of block grants. So uh, behavioral healthcare is where I am actually completely mm-hmm. investing all of my time and money.
2: Mm-hmm. Marty. Well, first of all, I want to say on behalf of those of us in the trenches in medicine who can tell you that health care is messy. Mm-hmm. And as you learn in your own businesses, um, it's not that simple. Like we're going to tackle this and Mm -hmm. fix it and disrupt it and solve it. It is Mm -hmm. a giant industry with a lot of stakeholders, uh, of which the weakest voice is the patient out of all those stakeholders. Um, I want to just say thank you for innovating and making our jobs better Mm -hmm. and helping the care of patients. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the reason we went into medicine. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I'm so inspired to meet so many of you. Um, I'm, a big fan of Catholic hospitals. I'm not Catholic, maybe I should be. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But they have applied their mission and uh, consistent with their values, forgiving patients sometimes of their bills, offering charity care. That's a rarity nowadays. Mm -hmm. And I'm profiling them in in some writing I'm doing because one of the biggest drivers of cost besides the waste in the system is what I call price gouging. If we can use honest terminology or patient-centered terminology, a uh, patient is told a cabbage is $150,000, uh, kind of squirms and says they might look somewhere else. And the hospital says, no, no, it's, we'll do it for $40,000. And then they say, you know what, we've arranged to do it next door for uh, $5,000. And they say, okay, we'll match that.
1: You know, I was I mean, telling Marty a, a story that I got a letter from a grateful patient who had made the decision to to uh, sign up for a high deductible plan, and she really didn't understand what that was. She had emergency surgery that she needed, and then her husband had gotten cancer. And she said to me, because of that decision that she didn't understand, she, she would have lost her house and gone bankrupt, but because of our financial advisors, they helped her you know, qualify. And so those are the type of things that Marty's talking about. When people are vulnerable and they're ill. We we talk about healthcare like it's something, you know, this cognitive dissidence. These are the most vulnerable time of people in their lives. The number one bankruptcy. And so you know, the people that go into healthcare, and you are in healthcare now, self select ourselves because we commit ourselves to journeying with people wherever they're at. And so that's what Marty's talking and about I think- here. So Marty,
0: I'm going to push you, though. Yeah. Andre's fixing mental health, starting with opioids. What are you doing? What's your, what's your one thing?
2: So as surgeons, it's, a, to me, an embarrassment that we can't agree on how many opioid pills you should go home with after a standard gallbladder removal or colectomy or thoracectomy or a C-section. So why is it that it's the Wild West and one of my residents says, I like to give 90 and I like to give five and I like to give 30. So we've created a website, solvethecrisis.org where we've listed guidelines that I've developed at Johns Hopkins with my partners to say laparoscopic cholecystectomy, five pills max. And actually most people can get away with ibuprofen and acetaminophen in combination. You don't need anything. Now, if we actually explain to patients Um, You can take an opioid, but just so you know, there's a risk of fatal addiction and destroying your life. And, Mm -hmm. you know, people wouldn't take it. We just give them out like candy. And I think, to me, it's an embarrassment that we're talking about 50% of babies in a NICU with NARS. We're talking about the opioid crisis. We've got some of the best talent in medicine committing his Mm -hmm. life now to the opioid Mm -hmm. epidemic. And we're still giving out opioids like candy. And I've walked up to senators in D.C., which are, as you know, a dime a dozen, Mm -hmm. And I've said, I can tell you who in Vermont is prescribing absurd amounts of opioids in narcotic naive patients after routine surgery. Do you want to see the data? And I have not seen that level of interest in actually getting dirty and on the ground and looking at that. But that's our work, Mm -hmm. solvethecrisis.org. Liz, the last words,
0: you, you get all the time, money, influence in the world. What's the thing you're doing?
1: Well, just like what I said earlier, it's this sort of changing the mindset on abundancy and not scarcity. So what I've committed to all of our communities, we have three large communities, three large regions, one in Oregon, Washington, uh, and up in Ketchikan, Alaska, that $100 million for our communities. And we've uh, developed community needs assessments. And what whatever we need to do to partner in the communities. And I think that's that next step, is that this, this humble partnership, that's what we're doing. We're not going in there knowing everything, understanding that we're partnering with the community, um, just like we did with the, uh, with the NARS unit we, up in Bellingham, Washington. One of our orthopedic surgeons for the last 10 years The weekend after Thanksgiving, he and about 300 volunteers spend the whole weekend. They partnered with a shoe company and giving coats and shoes and examining uh, unhomed people's feet. So, I mean, these are the type of things. I know it's not sexy. I know it's not, you know, it's not going to be personalized medicine. It really is understanding our communities and meeting them where they're at in in a way of abundancy.
0: Fabulous. Thank you to all three of you. Keep up the good work. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks. Sam.